Well, this morning we're starting into a new series that I think we'll be in for a number of months. We're going to work through the book of Hebrews, Lord willing, together. And uh, Jake and I were talking about this this week, actually, and both confessing that uh, Hebrews is a big book, uh, not in terms of length necessarily, but in terms of content. Uh, This is demanding. Uh, It's going to be very demanding for me. Uh, It'll be very demanding for you. And one of the things that we can do which may be helpful in terms of preparation is I'll be working through about uh, roughly a chapter or so per week. Uh, This morning, just the first four verses, uh, because the author has a lot of extended arguments where you really want to follow the flow. So to prepare, it would be very helpful if you could just read the chapter uh, ahead of time, uh, think about it, meditate on it. Particularly, you'll, we're going to discover there are a lot of Old Testament passages uh, that the author is referring to. And so if you read the chapter ahead of time, then go back, read, actually look up those Old Testament passages and read them, meditate upon them. Uh, part of what Hebrews is doing is it's giving us an extended meditation on how Jesus Christ is superior to everything that's come before because he's the fulfillment of Old Testament categories and texts, okay? So the more steep we are in Old Testament, the better we'll do when we work through this book. This morning, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Next week, we're going to look at verses 5 through 14. So this week, if you want to read verses 5 through 14 over and over again, and look up the Old Testament references, they're basically just a collection of Old Testament quotations. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, this is the Word of God. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. It's actually... Uh, an awful lot uh, in this little prologue. Uh, a lot of these themes are, are developed and picked up again uh, throughout the book, so Lord willing, we'll see that in due course. Uh, but lots, lots just here in this, in Greek, what is one sentence, uh, broken up for translation for us here neatly into this paragraph, uh, this one idea, the, the greatness and the glory of the Son. Before we uh, look at this passage together, I'm going to ask you to just take a moment individually uh, to bow before the Lord. You come in from uh, the circumstances of your life and the, the realities of your week, and the Lord knows those things perfectly. Uh, so you may come in with a great deal of joy this morning. You may come in with a great deal of sorrow. Uh, perhaps for some it's a mixture of both. And so just take a few moments to lay your heart out before the Lord. Uh, then I'll lead us together in prayer.
Our Father, it is in this last era of salvation history that you have spoken definitively through your Son. And your Son continues to speak through this Word. Your Spirit continues to take the Word of the Son and to open our minds to understand it and to apply it to our hearts to live it. And so this morning we pray that you'll help us to understand who your Son is. And in understanding your Son, Father, we know that we will understand you because he is the exact representation of your being. He is even now not only our creator, but he is our sustainer, holding all things together, holding our very lives together. And so, Father, we pray that this morning you'll enable us in our hearts and in our souls to to comprehend part of the splendor that is yours, that belongs to you. Help us see with, with new and fresh eyes part of the grandeur of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we recognize that we'll never be able to fully comprehend him, we'll never be able to fully comprehend you, and yet you can lead us into deeper experiences and deeper realities, deeper glimpses of who you are, your nature and essence. And so we pray that you'll give us that blessing this morning, uh, conform us more into the image of Jesus, and help us to adore him and to magnify his name. Father, for those uh, who are regularly with us, who are sick or uh, not able to be here for whatever reason this morning, I pray that you'll be with them. Uh, Give them uh, the comfort and strength that they need uh, wherever they are. Draw them close to yourself by your Spirit. We do thank you for the opportunity to gather to worship you corporately, but we also thank you that Wherever we are, even as individuals, uh, we have direct access to you, always through the mediator, Jesus. So, Father, please draw us together uh, to you. Draw those who are elsewhere to yourself as well. And for those uh, who are teaching uh, the children and youth this morning, I pray that your spirit will be with them as well. Open your word, uh, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, part of the importance that the author of this book attaches to understanding the nature of the Son is found partly in the fact that he bypasses all of the normal uh, features of greetings in an epistle. So if you read Paul, you know, Paul is forever, you know, identifying himself as the apostle. He's always greeting various churches, wishing them grace and peace, etc. Here, the author doesn't identify himself, he doesn't identify the recipients. There's no salutation whatsoever. He just gets into it. He just wants you to know this is absolutely essential. You need to know who the Son of God is. That's the focus from the very beginning. Nothing else uh, is, is worth saying to him. He wants you to focus on Jesus immediately. Now, we, many of us here, would refer to ourselves as Christians, and a Christian is someone who follows Christ. Of course, and that just sort of begs the question, well, who is Christ? What do you mean when you talk about Jesus or following Jesus? Who is that? 
Well, this isn't an exhaustive answer, but it's a pretty good start uh, into understanding who is this Christ that we're following? Who is the Son of God that we say is our Lord? Who is this Christ that we say is our Redeemer? You almost can't find four verses uh, that give you a better perspective. It's not the whole package, but gives you a great glimpse, sort of just a tour around who Jesus is, some of his features, some of what he is by essence and nature, some of what he's done. It's an integral passage to understand Jesus Christ. And that's why we're going to memorize it. Uh, All four verses. Now, this morning, if you were here for the announcements, or even before, if you were here for Sunday school, you were informed that memorization is very important. For example, it is well worth knowing, as Rick reminded us, you should probably have your twin's birthday memorized. Uh, Probably worth doing, especially because you want to send your twin a birthday greeting on special occasions, and, and my understanding is actually Randy turned 75 today. So this is well worth telling, uh, wishing him a happy birthday on this auspicious occasion. You want to have certain dates memorized. Um, but Shane in Sunday school was talking about the importance of scripture memorization, and, and we were talking about reasons for uh, some of the benefit of it, and one of the things that, that many of us had to acknowledge is that Although we would say that scripture memorization is very important, it may not be something that we do regularly or currently. So, this week, four verses, you can do that. It's not that difficult. And so, we will memorize the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. How will we know that you've done that? Well, (laughs) any suggestions? Uh, We can have a test. Or maybe next week, before I read verses 5 through 14, we'll recite it together, okay? So we'll gather next week, and then before I read verses 5 through 14, we will recite verses 1 through 4 together. Now, this passage, this whole book begins, and again, one of the themes is going to be demonstrating from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus Christ is superior to everything. He surpasses everything that came before. And the reason for this is that he's the fulfillment. Uh, He is what God's plan has always been aimed towards. He's a telos or the goal or the end. Everything God is trying to accomplish, everything God will accomplish, everything God is finds its sort of integration point with Jesus. It all hinges on the Son. And so this plan, which finds fulfillment in the Son, and by the Son, and through the Son, and for the Son, is, has perfect continuity with everything that God has done in the past. So, the author says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That is, God has always been a God who is revealing himself. He is always a God who is speaking. He's always a God who is showing people that he is there. And he does this at many times and in a variety of ways. And so if you think through, actually, Old Testament revelation, the very beginning, sort of special revelation and general revelation, uh, the Bible begins by alerting us to the fact that God is a talking God. God speaks. He creates a heaven and an earth just by a sort of volitional will, just by speech, just by directing his desire for something to exist, and it comes into existence. 
the word of God is, is so powerful that the very speech of God brings a universe into existence. And so God is a God who, by definition, in creation, reveals himself. Everything that exists is a revelation of God by definition. By its very nature, the world exists showing that there is a creator, showing that there is a God. And so God reveals himself all of the time. The very fact that you exist is a revelation of God because you're created in God's image. And the very fact that there is a world is a revelation that there is a creator. And so everything, literally everything, is attesting all of the time, non-verbally, that there is a God. And not only that, though, God also speaks verbally. He gives his word. He sometimes uses prophets, sometimes in a non-mediated way. Like with Moses, he would speak directly face-to-face with Moses. The voice of God is heard at different times. Think about the baptism of Jesus. The voice of God is heard directly from heaven. Uh, there are theophanies, that is, there are, there are glory manifestations of God, uh, like the Shekinah glory and the cloud and the pillar of fire. Uh, there are the actions of God where he reveals himself. Uh, verbal instruction combined with action is what you have in uh, the Exodus, for example. When the children of Israel are liberated out of Egypt, God tells them what he's going to do, and then he reveals his mighty power by actually bringing his plan to fruition. So all through history, God has been revealing himself, God has been speaking, God has been showing himself to people. However, it kind of seemed a little bit not uncoordinated, but eclectic. Different ways, different times. In fact, a lot of scholars will argue that instead of translating as various ways, it should probably be translated more something along the lines of piecemeal. That is, God kind of, he gives revelation at different times, but it just seems like there's a lot of disparate bits of revelation. It's helping you understand who he is, but what ties it all together? What holds the law and the prophets together? What holds creation and the sacrificial system together? What holds the, the, the Davidic kingship and, and the priesthood and all of those things? What, what holds all of this revelation together? It's like, it's like you're, you're missing something fundamental. You're missing the, the, the capstone that, that ties the whole building together. Where is it? The author says, well, the reason you felt that way the reason that, that God was revealing himself in this sort of piecemeal fashion was he was establishing a framework which did have a climactic point. There was a capstone which was needed to complete the building, and that was the sun. So in the past, different ways, different times, God spoke. He was revealing himself, and that was good. But in these last days, that is now in this final era of God's revelation, He has spoken to us by his son. It's at this time that after all of those centuries of revelation, now without prophets, 
God is speaking directly to his people through the person of his Son. He is the final revelation of God. He's, in this sense, the last of the prophets. He's the last one who comes with sort of this definitive revelation of who God is. The author then goes on to begin to tell us a bit about who this son is. So in these last days, he says, in this final period of salvation history before the consummation, God has spoken to us definitively and in an integrated sense, in a sense of fulfillment by his son. Well, who is the son? First, he's the heir of all things. So the son who speaks to us in these last days is the heir of everything. The entire world is his. In Psalm 2, the king is told to ask God and all of the nations will be given to him as his inheritance. But here it's not merely the nations. Here it's everything. The son receives absolutely everything as is as his inheritance. I, I, I don't know how many of you um, are royalists or how many of you are is still fighting the American Revolution against the monarchy. Uh, but there was uh, some interesting news this week, and lots of news this week about various things, of course. Um, but one is that uh, there's a little bit of dissension, apparently, in the ranks of the royal family, and that uh, there may be a, a little bit of a familial exit uh, from the royal family. Uh, this is you know, when I, there, I have to say this, there's so much misinformation that floats around, and, and the media so often gets things only partially right. I mean, this morning when I was texting Harry, he was saying a lot of this is overblown. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not really getting the whole story, so, so I, I can't say overly much about it, of course. But, but you, you wonder, like, what, 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 what exactly is going on there, and, and what exactly is going to be the outcome, and, and, and all the rest. And, 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 you know, well, dear... Dear Queen Elizabeth, if, if you're looking for another heir, you know, uh, th- th- then I, I just might be interested in, in filling that position. Uh, I, I don't mind the paparazzi. I've put up with them long enough. And, uh, you know, all, all, the, all the prestige and, and all, all of the wealth and, and all of the rest, well, well, maybe that's not half bad. Well, the reality is probably a lot of us, at least in terms of inheritance, we're quite happy to inherit uh, an estate like that which is passed down in the royal family. Uh, a lot of us would likely be thrilled to find out today that we were appointed to be the heir of Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or one of these uh, people who have more money than they know what to do with. Uh, it'd just be wonderful. But the son, precisely because he is the son is the heir of the Father and gets everything the Father has. And one of the amazing things in Scripture that we're told this, if you are in the Son, then everything the Son has is yours. And so you actually, Paul will tell us, you are an heir of God and a co-heir of Christ. Now, that's an amazing thing, an heir of God and a co-heir of Christ. Why? Because God is your Father, and when you are in the Son, everything the Son has is yours. 
And so here, expanding what Paul says, one of the things you find out is, you know, if you're an heir of God and a co-heir of Christ, well, what do you stand to inherit? Well, if you're a co-heir with Christ, you stand to inherit everything Christ inherits. And Christ is the heir of all things, which means you are the heir of all things, everything. Not just this world, but the new heavens and new, and new earth is yours. The glory and the splendor, not of, not of the royal family in the UK, but of, of the King of kings and Lord of lords is yours. You share in this because you participate in the Son. He's the heir of all things. And it's by virtue of that status that he has that we ourselves are ultimately blessed by inclusion and faith in him. He's the heir of all things. And also, the second thing we're told is that he's the agent of creation, through whom he also made the universe. God made the world through word, Genesis 1. And as, as the Bible unfolds, one of the things that we begin to find is that this identification of the Word is that the Word is the second person in the Trinity who acts as the agent of creation. He actually brings into effect the will of God. So John's Gospel will tell us that, that uh, nothing has been made without him. He has made all things. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And so again, the idea, you get this actually in Colossians as well, is is. As you move through the Old Testament, you're going to see that God is the creator, but God creates through means. He creates through wisdom. He creates through word. He creates through spirit. And this is cast out in a fully Trinitarian way in the New Testament, that the Son is the maker of all things. Fascinatingly, in some ways, this means that as the heir of all things, the Son is the one who has created his own inheritance. He's made everything, and it all belongs to him. And by virtue of us belonging to him as well, it belongs to us. Now, not only did he make the universe, and I've said this before, so I won't camp on this too long. Just a quick observation. This seems to be like one of those just incredible throwaway phrases that you get all of the time in Scripture. It's just a phrase through whom he also made the universe. Just like in, in Genesis 1, talking about God creating, and then, you, then you get this, this, this little short sentence, and he also made the stars. As if that's really not overly impressive, as if you can just kind of, that, that doesn't deserve its own sentence even. You know, through whom he made the universe, let's just make that a phrase. Like, let's make that a dependent clause, subordinate to, you know, the main clause, the main idea that he's spoken through his son. I mean, the universe... Do you know what the universe is like? Do you have any idea? And, and if you say, yes, you do, it, it shows that you don't. Because the universe is, in the most literal sense, mind-boggling. You cannot begin to comprehend the scale, the size. It's impossible. It is literally impossible for human minds to be able to to work with those kinds of numbers. Billions upon billions upon billions of stars. You don't know what those numbers mean. Do you know how big stars are? Nope. 
No, you don't. You have no way of comprehending even remotely what a star is like. And there's just, there's just all kinds, there's, there's lots, 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 lots. He just made it. Heir of all things, also just on a random day in eternity past decided to make a universe. That's the sun. Now, all of this is running along these lines, though. You have to remember this. It's reinforcing, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now you're being given a bunch of reasons as to why you should pay attention when the son speaks. Well, who's the son? He's the heir of God. He's the heir of everything. He made the universe. But there's actually an ambiguity in the word universe as well in, in the original language. It can refer to space, universe. It can also refer to time, that is, ages. And proper, something which is actually properly ambiguous, it can refer to both. It can toggle. And so one of the things that you're probably supposed to read is you're supposed to read this and you go, well, is it that he made the universe or is that he made the ages? That is, did he make space or did he make time? Is he in control of, of history or just the material universe? And of course, as you begin to process that and think it through, the answer, of course, is that you can't really be in charge of one without being in charge of the other. He, he's made the whole space-time continuum. You know, he is the creator of the universe and the lord of the ages. He is the one who providentially guides history. He has made the, the, the matrix of history and then is providentially guiding that matrix to his appointed end. This is what the Son is doing. He made and guides the universe. The Son, in the third place, is the radiance of God's glory. The Son shines with the glory of God. Now, in the New Testament, we get sort of two perspectives on the glory of Christ. The one perspective is that he reveals the Father's glory. The other perspective is that he reveals his own glory. And so here, what you have is probably a little bit of both. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. That is, he shines with the very glory of God. Probably, it's to be thought of in this way. As you know, uh, the moon is not properly a source of light. You know, as bright as it is you know, on, uh, on many of our nights, it doesn't have its own intrinsic light source. Uh, you, you know this. I mean, the, the moon is, is roughly a rock. It is not a ball of burning gas like the sun. So the moon's light is reflected light from the sun. That's why it's so bright. Its light source is, the reason that it shines with light is because it's reflective. So is the sun merely reflective, or is he also a source of intrinsic glory and light? The next phrase helps you out. He's the exact representation of his being. So the fourth thing, the third thing is that he's the radiance of God's glory. The fourth thing, that he's the exact representation of his being. Now, this language in the original actually refers to um, a stamped image. 
So you have your stamp, and you press it down, and you get the exact same image, the exact same representation. It's a perfect replica, like a seal. Now, if you are the exact representation, the exact representation, perfect sealed image of God, then that means that your attributes, your characteristics, have an identicality or are coextensive with the attributes and characteristics of God himself. Which means that if God has the characteristic, you have that characteristic. So is God eternal? Yes, then so is the Son. Is God holy? So is the Son. Is God omnipotent? So is the Son. And you just start going through all the attributes of God, and the Son has every single one of them in exactly the same way. So... Does the Father have intrinsic glory? Yes. Then so does the Son. And so the Son shines with God's glory, not in a derivative, reflective sense, but in an intrinsic sense. That is, He is also, as the second person in the Trinity, He shines with the glory of God because He is God. He is co-glorious. He is co-equal in glory. And He shines with it as the exact representation of of God's being. He has the exact same nature as God. So, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son to ignore the voice of the Son is quite literally to ignore the voice of God because he's the exact representation of his being. The fifth thing we're told is he's the sustainer of all things. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. It is his will and power that keeps everything in existence. Everything. He made the universe, and he sustains the universe. This is something just just interesting, just just to note. And and, and I'm not sure if you ever think about this. It's worth thinking about. The only reason the collection of molecules that makes up your body continues to exist in the world is because Jesus desires it. Fundamentally, that's the reason. Push through to the back of every natural law. And natural laws are actually just statistical correlates for how we have observed things to work over time. If you push to the back of all of these things, what you discover, backstopping everything, is the will of God, the will of the Son. The Son doesn't sustain your existence for one moment. You don't just have a bad moment. You don't have a moment at all. You don't exist. The Son sustains all things. This also shows that He's interested He's created the universe, and he sustains the universe. He sustains all things at every moment. In this sense, your life is in his hands, or in his will, or in his word all of the time. So, the son speaks. One of the things the son says is that you will continue to exist 
So your continued existence is, again, revelatory of the will of the Son. He wants you to exist. That's why you exist. If he didn't will it, nothing would be. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, these are number six and seven that you're told about the Son. He provides purification for sin, and then he's exalted. Okay? So he's the one who provides purification, then he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. Now, just stop for a moment and think for you, in your judgment. In this paragraph so far, what is the most impressive thing the Son has done? Is it the creation of the universe? Is it shining with the glory of God? Is it sustaining all things? Is it providing purification for sin? What's harder to do? Is it harder to be an atoning sacrifice that really atones for sin or harder to make a universe? Well, frankly, I don't really know any way of answering that question. Uh, That's why they're better to ask than to answer. Uh, Doubtless whatever you think is right. Um, But I do know this. In many ways, the rest of the book will be a sustained treatment on how the Son provides purification for sin, not a sustained treatment on how He made the universe or how He sustains it. And so at some level... The work of the sun, the universe, as impressive as the creation of the universe and the world and all those things happen to be, that provides the environment in which the great work and revelation of the sun takes place, and that is through providing atonement for sin. That's the work that is celebrated again and again and again and again. You just, just think about the balance and proportion of the New Testament. Does the New Testament talk more about the sun being the creator or the sun being the redeemer? Where does the the accent fall? Well, if you're going by sheer quantity, I mean, it's not even remotely comparable. The Father reveals his glory climactically through the sacrificial work of the Son. Being a substitute, dying in the place of sinners, providing purification for sin. Because when he does this, he has this whole collocation of attributes, Theologically. Uh, So in other words, what I mean is this. If if you really want to understand the holiness of God, where do you look? Well, sure, you you, you memorize Leviticus, and then you look at the cross, right? Or or if you really want to know, like, like where's the love of God? Oh, there's a variety of places to look to to, to see the love of God. But, but you're not going to see a greater expression of the love of God than through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ at Calvary, paying for the sins of his people. Where are you going to see the justice of God? Where are you going to see the wrath of God? Where are you going to see the compassion of God? Where are you going to see the mercy of God? Where are you going to see the grace of God? Well, there's, a, there's a whole variety of places, all the New Testament, but, but it all runs. It, it, the confluence is always at the cross of Christ. That's the revelation of God in its most climactic, fullest sense, yet so far in human history, not detached from resurrection. 
He provided purification for sins. Because it, it's wonderful that the Son is the exact representation of God. It, it's wonderful that He shines with the glory of God, that He's created all things. It's wonderful that God has spoken to us in these last days through His Son. That it, it's wonderful that He sustains things. All of that's great, but there's still a fundamental problem, and that fundamental problem is that we are in a wrong relationship with God because of our sin. The problem is not in God. Uh, the problem is in us. And, and so you can, you can see, have the biggest view of God possible, that, that God is, is all that he is, and, and yet that's disastrous. If you're lost in sin, if you're confirmed in rebellion against him, if there isn't purification for sin, the glory of God is our undoing. It's our destruction. And so the higher the view of God, the higher the view of the Son, the more awareness there has to be that we have woefully and culpably fallen short of measuring up to even his most basic standards. And in a world that is just, there ought to be consequences for that. There ought to be punishment. There ought to be chastisement or justice is not done. And what we could never do on our own, the Son has done on our behalf. The Son has paid the penalty for our sin. And in paying the penalty for our sin, in that song that we sang, it was my death, he died. That's exactly right. You know, when he dies on the cross, he's not dying for his own sin because he doesn't have any. He's dying as a substitute in the place of his people. He's dying their death. He's paying their debt. He, he's paying for their sin. And in so doing, he provides purification for sin. Sin is cleansed away. Our debt is discharged. God's legal penalty against us is satisfied because of the Son, not because of us. In fact, in spite of us, the Son acts on our behalf. And then by the Spirit leads us to see the need of this atonement, leads us to see our need of purification for sin. One of the, one of the, the marks of Hebrews is that the utter futility of the Old Testament sacrificial system is going to be revealed. And one of the ways that it will be revealed is the fact that it was perpetual. It never stopped. It never stopped because it never worked. If it had ever worked, you wouldn't have needed to keep doing it. If you had ever actually had an atonement that atoned for sin, you'd have said, oh my goodness, Yom Kippur was a success this year. Cancel it next year. Sin has been atoned for. Where it works, you don't keep doing it. But you kept doing it because it didn't work. It was always prophetically pointing forward to a day there needs to be an atonement that actually atones for sin bulls, the goats, the lambs, their pointers, their pictures, but they never have taken away a single sin, and the people knew it. It's one of the reasons Hebrews will say one of the great things within the new covenant through Jesus, we finally have purification for our conscience too, because you know the atonement worked. Well, Jesus, we're told, provides purification for sin, and the seventh thing we're told is that he sits down, he's exalted at the right hand of the Father, at the majesty in heaven. He sits down at the, ma- at the right hand of the majesty of heaven precisely because his work is finished. That is, he accomplished what he did, what he came to do. The atonement worked. 
Now, I don't know how to say this in any way that will make you appreciate it. The more you study the Old Testament scriptures, the more you look at world religions and their pathways to trying to make you right with God by self-effort, and the more you reflect on your own sin, the more incredible it is that there's actually an atonement that works that sin, our great problem as a race and as individuals, our sin can actually be purified. That is the biggest deal in all of human experience. And it is given to us through and by the Son. And so this Son, who provides purification for our sin, is also the one who now reigns over everything. So, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. This is the eighth thing you're told. He's superior to the angels. Now, the next actual, not just verses 5 through 14, but actually verses 5 through the end of chapter 2 will be a sustained argument demonstrating that the Son is superior to the angels. I'm going to take it in two sections foundational next week than the than sort of building the argument uh, in chapter 2 the following week, Lord willing. But the basic idea is this, just in this one verse. It'll, it'll be cashed out. We'll look at more of this later. The idea is that the Son is superior because the Son is reigning at the right hand of the majesty on high. None of the angels will ever, will ever be installed there. The Son is the King of Kings. He he is co-equal in rule with the sovereign God, the one who sits on the throne in Revelation 4. And so he rules over all things, including the angels. This installation as the resurrected God-man, this installation at the right hand of the Father, proves his superiority to the angels in an analogous way, the author says, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now, What's important here is to recognize that the, the temporal idea of his exaltation, that that temporality does not pull forward the inherited name with it, as if he gets a name when he's exalted that he didn't have before, which now means he's superior to the angels, but he wasn't in the past. Rather, the fact that he's reigning over the angels now is analogous to the fact that his name has always been superior to theirs. Because after all, what is the name that we're talking about? What name has he inherited? What is the name that he's known by? Well, that name is the Son. He is the Son. The name of the Son is always superior to the name of the angels. And how long has he been the Son? Well, John 5 tells you that he's been the Son eternally. Eternally generated by the Father. He's always been the Son. That's always been His name. The name given to Him as the exact representation of the deity. The rest of the book is going to build on this little introductory sentence 
to try to work out a little bit more and more detail just all the ways, all the categories in which the Son is superior. But one of the major lines of application in this book again and again and again is going to be this. Listen. This is your God. This is how you come to know God. It's through the Son. Do you know Him? What will you do if you ignore Him? What will you do if you reject Him? What will you do if you come close to Him and then pull away? Precisely because of the nature of the Son, our relationship to Him brings tremendous blessing or tremendous woe. But He is the dividing point in everything. Everything hinges on your relationship to the Son. The author will make this very, very, very clear. So the question for you today is do you know the Son? Do you know Jesus? Do you know him as your maker, as your Lord, as your sovereign, as your creator, as your redeemer? Do you know him as your savior, the one who has purified you from, for, for, from sin, the one who has provided atonement for you? Do you know him? And listen, uh, uh, let me tell you, honestly, just, just one of those, these terrible moments of pastoral honesty, which we try to eliminate as much as possible, but I'll, I'll give you one today. It would be really nice, it would just be so nice, if I could say, you know, over time, I just really feel like I understand Jesus better and better and better and better. And maybe there's a sense around certain edges where that may be true. But there's a very another sense in which as time goes on, my goodness, how are you going to comprehend the Son with all that He is, with all that He does? I mean, he, He's God. And so even as we grow, we grow to realize how little we understand of who He is, how little we can contain Him, how, how uncontainable He is. He, and and the, more, the, the more you get to know Him, the, 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 the bigger He gets. And, and, and you think you have a little bit of a horizon line on Him. Then all of a sudden the horizon shifts and it's so much larger than you ever thought. And, and you realize that, that even, yes, hopefully you, you, you know Him truly. What you know isn't wrong, but what you know is just, oh, you, you thought it was the tip of the iceberg, but it wasn't the tip of the iceberg. It, it, was, it, was, it was a little... little snow molecule almost on the tip of the iceberg, and that's all you have, and, and it's infinite all the way down. And, and so we don't say, do you know him, like, in the sense of, have you mastered theology? We're saying, do you know him? Do you have a relationship with him? Are you walking with him? Are you, are you striving to know him better? Are you growing? Are you growing to know the Son? It's actually why we're here on earth. It's why He made you. It's why He sustains you. You were made so you could know Him. Thank God. He doesn't wait for us to take the initiative 
He came to us. He created us. He speaks to us in these last days. It's going to take all of eternity to get to know the Son better and better. I'm asking our musicians to come and lead us in our closing song.